It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode 11 of 20. I'm lucky. I only got into the fire service as like homage to my friend Pat Brown. I had no intentions of being a fireman. I just skipped, missed being a cop by two inches. Not that I didn't respect the uh, first responders and law enforcement, what have you. It's just that that was not going to be the path of my life until 9-11. And then this, you know, it's almost like the flag bearer on the field of battle. When you see your buddy fall, you just instinctually want to go and pick up the flag and keep going. And I had the opportunity. It was funny, in, in fire school, I was 41 years old and everybody else was 18 and 19. And, and I remember a guy, Kevin, he was like 21 and he cheated off me on the final written exam. And I remember going, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, slow down. You turn the page. And I thought, he's cheating off of me. I finally arrived, you know. <laughs> Nobody ever cheated off of me. You're listening to actor Robert John Burke, who goes by Bobby. Bobby's been in projects like Tombstone and Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And he played Bart Bass in Gossip Girl and Cousin Mickey in Rescue Me. But far more important to him than worldly accolades are the heroes who are willing to give up their entire world to save ours and he's unique and fortunate to call them his friends. One of the FDMY's most legendary firemen, Captain Patrick Patty Brown, was Bobby's best friend. And Patty's death on 9-11 led this actor to become a volunteer firefighter, and he's still one to this day. More of Bobby Burke's remarkable story after a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's return to the story. We did this interview in Bobby's firehouse in Ocean Beach on Fire Island which is just outside of New York City and where Bobby moved after 9-11. So you'll hear the background noise of a firehouse and most especially the ice machine, which the last time Bobby turned off didn't go so well. So we didn't do it this time. Here's Bobby on Captain Patrick Patty Brown. I know his father was a very hard-charging FBI agent. Um, his mother taught singing and piano he had a younger brother, Michael, who was an engineer, became a city fireman, became a medical doctor, and practiced emergency medicine for over 30 years. And then his sister, Carolyn, who has been a stalwart in Patty's legacy. And Patty would have been just so, is so proud of her as he looks over her. And so Pat felt it was his duty to go to Vietnam to become a Marine, as is the tradition of the Brown family, a lot of military service. So he becomes trained, but the year is 1970. We're drawing down from Vietnam. And Pat says to his father, you get me over there. 
and they write a letter to some congressman and said, my son is a trained Marine, he wants to go. He goes, he's in charge as a sergeant, he's in charge of some, like a regimental aspect of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, Arvin soldiers. I think they were, might have been Rangers even. They were very elite. Uh, he does his time there and he's awarded medals for different acts. He comes home, cannot somehow get on the fire department. I think there was a hiring freeze. So in his humility, I, I think it was humble. Rob. Hey. How are you? I'm giving a deposition on... Uh, no. <laughs> so he uh, goes on the fire patrol, which is kind of a humbling thing. Yeah. You know, they work for the insurance on the riders. Yeah, you don't want to be on the fire patrol. Yeah covering furniture and this and that and everything but he's got to be around the job because as a child as a 13 14 15 year old he was in the fdny explorers great stories there this guy rince i can't remember his name rinciata is his last name he was in the fire patrol there was this other captain butch uh oh brandy's no uh no yeah they were in the fire patrol together they tell the greatest stories of going into the fdny academy you know, giving Willie the Night Watchman uh, a bottle of blueberry brandy and getting to open up lines, charge lines, you know, light pallets on fire. And one particular night they were in there and they gave Willie the bottle and they go in and they operate. They're teenagers. And what happened was they light some fires and they're putting it out. And they're with the Bronx contingent of the explorers and the Queens contingent and all these kids. They're buffing fires. But this particular night... Uh, it drops below freezing and everything, the whole place is like an ice palace because they just, they've watered everything. And so Willie the Night Watchman has some explaining to do. But there's pictures of Pat and Butch, I can't remember his last name. He became a captain in the okay. city fire department on trains holding their gear, going to buff a job. You know, they'd have their scanners. And so the fire department was very formative in his life. And then he came on at 26 truck and I think he went over to. Rescue 2, he went to Squad 41, Engine 69, covered it, Rescue 1, then caught an assignment to Engine 69 as the captain, and then downtown to 3-truck. And he had this very high-profile rope rescue at 46th Street, 16th floor, two victims. Well, the day before, I was moving out of a third-floor apartment, and he started to lower my possessions with a rope out the back of my window. I said, you're, you're, you're nuts. I, I look, what, what are we, hillbillies? He goes, no, it's a lot easier. The, the day before that rope rescue, with a, with, a, with a rope he had in the back of his car. The next day, I get a call. Turn on television, turn on television. Oh, we just affected this really great rescue. Whereas he gets up to the top roof. He's got a victim on like the one exposure and the four exposure and they lower Patty Baugh, Patty Baugh right. first, and you see the victim jumps out onto Patty. No explaining. The guy just doesn't take any instruction. He just kind of jumps in the, the rope pinions a little. And then the second victim, Kevin Shea, another firefighter, rescue one. Kevin instructs to put one hand here, one hand here, wrap your leg, wrap your leg. Now they go. And they get, you know, Bruce Newberry, uh, Ray McCormick. I forget who else was on the roof with them. But Pat conducted the operation. It's his choice to put this rope into service twice, two impact loads. And the funny thing was, is that he was disciplined. You're only supposed to use that rope one time. Plus they couldn't tie off the couldn't second tie off time. They didn't have something to tie it There's to. There's nothing to tie off, so they, they would they laid hold on each it. other down. 
they successfully rescued these two firemen, but Pat was disciplined for using the same rope twice. And he said, well, tell that to the second victim. You know, I'm sorry, buddy. Are you going to burn to death or, or fall to your death because we're not allowed to rest? That's Pat Brown. You know, the greater good, uh, the risk-reward ratio. And he took a, a risk, and he saved that man's life. And, um, you know, you see Kevin Shea on the end of this rope. That's a risk, buddy. That's hey, Kevin, is there a nicer guy who's ever on your job? Yeah. I mean, nice man. this is the thing, is the city fire department, the guys that I know and knew, it just, they just, it's, like, it's like the nicest people in the world. The people who literally, there's a lot of talk like, oh, I would lay my life down for my brother. These are the guys who actually do it without hesitation. It's very strange in, mo- in the modern world to meet people like this. You know, the SEALs say they have intense fascination with people who hate mediocrity. You know what I mean? And, and the city fire department have intense fascination with people who, you know, it's like the worst thing you can be called is not an MF or a jerk or the, it's a coward. And Pat used to use that very judiciously. He's like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, coward, total coward. And I was like, I didn't understand why is that the worst thing you could call somebody? I understand it now, you know. And, um, uh, because, because the person was presenting as something other than a coward, but they are a coward, you know what I mean? And so to me, that's, that's the worst thing you can be. I understood immediately why that is the worst thing you could possibly be. Um, so he had many operations and, 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 and jobs in the fire service. I remember when he was at Three Truck and they pulled some woman out and Pat was resuscitating her, Pat was resuscitating her, and he insisted on another man, writing another man for the medal. And, and, I, and, and the other man told me, he says, I never touched her. That other man has expired on 9-11. And he said, you know, Bobby, I never touched her. The captain revived her. He wasn't taking no for an answer. He kept reviving her, kept giving her. We said, you know, you know, the captain's lost it a little here. This woman is, is expired. And all of a sudden, she had green eyes, I was told, and the green eyes opened up, and, you know. He was just one of these people. They come blazing through life, and, and they're lucky and blessed enough to, to, what I call, practice the presence of God. You find out what you're good at, and you do it. It could be being a father. It could be fixing bicycles. It doesn't matter. When you practice the presence of God, you're doing exactly, you feel, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This feels okay. It could be driving a car. It could be doing anything in your day. So it's like the Native Americans, the First Nation people, they say, you know, we don't really talk and say prayers too much. When we go to the water and we get water, that's the prayer. When we chop wood, that's the prayer. When we feed our children, that's the prayer. It's the action. I, I hear this. This speaks to me, that type of religion, if you will. Um, and I think it spoke to Patty. Although, Patty was at Mass every, every Saturday night down on 14th Street. It, it gave him great solace to be in a church, it, great reflection, calmness. He, he liked it. He loved being somewhere that was calm and quiet. That's why he liked coming here, I believe. Patty used to say that no two fires are alike and that he needed to train and be ready spiritually, mentally, and physically, 110%. And the humility of Patty Brown was 
in lieu of that statement, you can do this job 100% correct and still get killed. That's the humility. So what I learned from Pat was that it was a learning culture. He'd always say that. Learning culture, what does that mean? It's like we're constantly learning. We've never had two fires that were alike. Jimmy worked here, he knew that. Joe worked over here, he knew. You know, uh, Morris knows, you know, forcible. Everybody had something. Vinnie Dunn collapsed. What was it all born of? It was all born of tragedy. That we kept learning, we kept pushing to learn. It's humility. Because the opposite is that is I know everything. I don't need to learn nothing, you know. And here again is a culture, not just of guys who give, but are humble enough to say, you know, there's gotta be a better way to do this, to help people and to help my brothers stay safe. So we all go home, you know. On 9-9, I was at a party on a roof in Patty's battalion in his district where he's a fireman. The party was for the Irish Film Festival. The Irish Film Festival gives money to the burn center. I'm on the roof, I'm in my milieu, which is film, and I see Jeff Giordano, a fireman from Three Truck, walking across the roof in burn, in, 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 in bunker gear. And now I say roof, it was a, it was a bar, hotel, roof kind of. I say, Jeff, what are you doing? And he goes, hey. And he goes, oh, the, the festival gives money to the burn center. My wife is the coordinator. I says, oh, where's the captain? And he goes, he's over there. And I look over and Patty Brown's like looking at me like this. Now I happen to have been talking to a woman at that time. So he says, oh, I'm gonna tell you all why. I says, ah, come on, Pat. So I said, what are you doing? He goes, yeah, Jeff had to pick up the money for the burn center from the festival. And then they get toned out to a job. He goes, come on. And I said, Pat, I'm not leaving here. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm, you know, he goes, come on, get on the rig. Come on, let's go. And he grabs me by the neck and I says, I never one time in Rescue One, one time in the 15 years I knew him, did I, did I ever ride the rig. And I get on the rig, three truck, and the guys are in there and we're talking and everything. And I know some of them. And, and I went from job to job to job to job all night long with him. That was September 9th. And that was the last time I saw him. And I said to him, I said, it was four o'clock in the morning. I said, you on letterhead, department letterhead, you would write a note to my wife that I was out with you. And he's like, ah. And uh, so then the morning of, um, you know, you've reached six, seven, seven, five, five, one, seven. And this is Pat, please leave your message. That was his outgoing message. And I was the first call, I said, brother, you're probably watching this. You're probably downtown. And I'm thinking in terms of battalions, who's taking what in? But he's definitely second due. I mean, like, you know. And I said, if you're down there, be safe. You know, and we always talk, give me the call. Because Patty could be on television at some operation. And I'm like, oh, I think he might be, you know, because I was concerned, you know, that he would be okay and his men would be okay. And um, then I call back and I was like, this isn't good. There was a, somebody on your job who gives speeches. He goes around in circuit, and he talks about meeting Pat in the lobby. And Pat says to him, don't bother checking in with command. They're only going to send you upstairs anyway. That never sat right with me. Patrick Brown checks in with fire command in Central Park because he knows the number. And he says, I'm getting stepped on. I just want you to know, this is Captain Brown, ladder three. We're on the 34th floor. The fire's above us. They're sending numerous 
burn people down through the stairwells, but just let command know. This is Patty Brown. And like this became kind of famous. This is three truck and we're still heading up. But his last words are thank you. So not only is he not freelancing. No. He's checking in and he's being courteous. Is there a better definition of a professional? And then the imminent collapse, you know, no, no transmissions except for his final one that we didn't find out for a while. There's another one, too, that I have never heard. I chose not to hear it. Uh, I'm supposed to be hearing it this year. There's another transmission from Pat that was recorded. He was told, everybody out, everybody out. And he said, I I can't go out because there's uh, people here we're helping right now. I don't know that they were other firefighters. My understanding is that they were civilians. And they said, everybody out, everybody out. Is, that wouldn't be an urgent, would it? It would be a... Uh, it would be basically, yeah. yeah. Like, like, just... But he spoke... Mayday, it's yeah. going to collapse. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Mayday, mayday, imminent collapse. Uh, but he had a bunch of burn victims, I believe. Multiple, multiple burn victims. Multiple. That they were tending to, and he just wouldn't... Yeah, he says, I'm not leaving anybody. Couldn't bring him. They couldn't carry him down, and yeah. they were going to stay with him. But he directly responds to it, apparently. Like, I belay that order. This is Captain Brown, yeah. Ladder 3. I belay that order. I like the Marine, he was, you know. He's like, I understand your message, and I am transmitting back to you that I am not going to do that. He would not leave them behind. Yeah. My son was going to grammar school on the east side of Manhattan, and I'm looking up at the skyline, and I'm like, this is no good. This is no Cessna, you know. And then we get home, and then, believe it or not, uh, Donnie Barrasco the real agent, Joe Pistone. He's a personal friend of mine. And the last night I was ever in the World Trade Center, I was at Windows on the World as Joe Pistone's date for Lou Shalero, who was the retiring head of the FBI office. He said, throw on a suit, you'll be my date. And that May, I was in Windows on the World. So Joe calls me, he goes, can you get out of the city? I said, yeah, he goes, there's planes that they don't know about. So my brother pulls up in front of the building, out we go. I put the kids here, to the house here, and then I go back in. Went back into the war zone that was Manhattan. More of Bobby Burke's story after these messages from our sponsors. Turn to Bobby's story. Remember, at this point, he was only an actor. Let's get back to Bobby on helping out at what we called the pile, the 15 acres of debris and human remains that made up Ground Zero. Mike Brown, Patty's brother, drove across the country because he couldn't get a flight from Las Vegas to New York, and he showed up at the doors of Ladder 3, and shifts have obviously already been going down and back, and they had lost uh, two complements of their company um, by virtue of the shift change and guys yeah. just the whole on duty platoon plus the guys who jumped on, right? So yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, they said, Mike, what do you want to do? Like, because Mike was a former fireman at yes. um, thirty-seven and forty up in one hundred twenty-fifth Street, and he said, I want to go look for Pat, and he pointed to me. He goes, and you're coming with me. And I, I didn't balk. I had no reaction whatsoever. I, I did have a reaction, but I just said, oh, I can't run. I can't hide. I, I must go. And I had no compunction to go. I was always very cognizant of the line between Patrick's 
profession and vocation and mine. I, we, we used to share a car together, and I'd drop the keys off. Come in, come in. No, 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 no. And maybe in 15 years, I came in three times. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I was not a buff. I, yeah. I didn't know what you guys did. I, I hung out with firemen right. and had zero idea of what you did. I mean, like, it's, it's shocking to me because I pick up on things, you know, playing cops. And I know how squad rooms work and bosses and, you know, assignments and stuff. But firemen, I had no idea what was going on at all. So down we go and I get some gear and up we go. And um, I think it was by virtue of how many men you lost in your company uh, where you were on that pile. And, and if you lost 14 men, you were not down in some bucket brigade. You were up at the top yeah. of that hill digging away. And that's where we were. And, you know, it was surreal. It was a, an abstraction in my head. Uh, there was one night there was a, a lightning storm, I remember. And that affected me pretty unbelievable. You know, it was just a very... Uh, uh, strange thing. You said it was kind of like a movie set. It was, yeah, but the movie set just kept going and going and going and going and going. And the, you know, Chief A to Chief B, Chief B to Chief C. There's a lot of radio chatter I always remembered. I remembered we're at the top of a hill and some guy from another truck company says, Hey, you, because everybody knows everybody. Yeah. They're like, Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Joe. Hey, John. And then they see me. They go, What's up? Like, this, they don't know me. So they said, the guy says to me, can you go down the hill and get a generator? Sure. You know, one of these 2,500cc Hondas. Right, right. So I go down and I get it and I bring it up because, uh, oh, we, we need the generator for the lights. Can you grab some lights? Yeah. Down the hill I go. Take me 20 minutes to go down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And long story short, I come back. I got the lights. I got the Jenny. I got the, the cords. And he goes, oh, there's no fuel. So I go down and get fuel. Another 20 minutes, half, 20 minutes down, 20 minutes back. Yeah. And this big truckie, I never, never saw him again, and I looked for him. I just looked for him in crowds. <laughs> like this, you know. And he says to me, he goes, is that mixed gas? And I said, you know what, brother? I says, this will run for like six hours, and then it'll seize up, and how about I'll go get you another one? And he goes, come on, come on, you're fine. You're like this. He's like breaking my job. Testing you out. <laughs> so we're at the side of the World Trade Center, and this guy's giving me a hard time. Yeah. And, oh, Steve Buscemi, we're, we're walking by one night, and I hear, hey, hey. Hey, like this. And it's Steve. And he goes, what's up? And I go, hey, what's up? And he said to Mike Moran, because Steve and John Moran went through the academy together. That's right. They were yes. in the same class. Yes. So he says to Moran, he goes, is Burke an actor who wants to be a fireman or a fireman who wants to be like, what's he, how is he here? And he says, no, he was a friend of Pat Brown's and he's with his brother. Oh, oh, oh. And if, those of you who don't know, Steve Buscemi was actually an active member of FDNY. Engine 55. Uh, Engine 55, Little Italy, uh, I think for probably about seven years. Yeah. And a funny story about that. I've heard this 20th hand, so Steve, forgive me if it's not correct. But (laughs) supposedly when he was uh, resigning, you have to to do an interview with your captain just to make sure you're in the right state of mind. You do want to leave. And he said, Cap, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving to be an actor. And then he said, Steve, you know, you're, you're not the, the best-looking guy in the world there. You know, you might want to reconsider that. He goes, hey, Cap, I got a certain look, and I'm going to make it work. And they still, to this day, he's now well-retired, that captain. They still crush him at reunion events saying, hey, that was real great advice you gave to Steve not to leave, huh, Cap? But, uh, but Steve was a wonderful guy who, who 
spent much of his time coming back and, and done a, a tremendous constant, amount of constantly constant and he's done, he's done I believe a film uh, about the guys the from guy, it and, yeah, uh, the job I think it was called yeah and one of my dear friends uh, was featured on it Larry Sullivan who was in the process of passing away Larry was just a supreme gentleman uh, huge oak of a guy and he literally shared his battle with 9-11 cancer with Steve but it, it, it showed the public the human side of the guy suffering in silence, but I'm sorry, Bobby. I didn't want to. Pull oh no, away not from at that, all. I just wanted to explain. You can't the essence, stay in the my essence pres- of Steve, who's uh, a good man. Steve, you can't say enough about Steve. Oh, Michelle. gentleman, gentleman, just the nicest. Yeah, yeah. Talk about a humble. And he was the, so you you saw him down there then actually yeah. at the at the oh, site. Oh yeah, wow. and he he had he had put in his hours at that moment because he at the, everybody was just on their heels, like yeah. really on the ropes, tired. Yeah. You know, uh, confused, disoriented, exhausted. Uh, you know, it was it was a a, a living nightmare, yeah. and um, one of the grueling, most grueling things was I was doing a podcast for Jason Bresler the other day. How when we were at the site and we'd be marching in and marching out, you stay with your group, you know, and people would peel off the line and come up to Mike Brown and go, "Patty," like and give him a big hug, and. You know, Mike's body would stiffen up, and he goes, uh, "I'm Mike. I'm Patty's brother." And people were like, some people were like, "Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss," and other people would be like, "Oh, I thought you looked like him," and like walk away. You know, but uh, that was shockingly traumatic for his brother because everywhere we went, you know, it's like this is Patty Brown, and like guys would come over. You know, Patty Brown didn't grow another seven inches overnight because Mike was like six three, Patty was like five ten. You know, but. Um, but that was very hard for Mike, he'd say in the aftermath. He goes, I, I would just freeze up and everybody, you know, every part of his body wanted to disappear and he wanted his brother to be back. And um, we would delude ourselves that, you know, wouldn't it be funny if Patty was like stuck in a liquor store under there somewhere and he couldn't drink any of the, bo- you know, we were always trying to keep our spirits up and everything. And, um, but, you know, only a few minutes on that pile and you knew because there wasn't anything there wasn't doorknobs there wasn't nothing it's like okay there's there's paper and and steel and compact you know sheetrock but where is everything where's the desks where's the computers where's the you know it's all just wire and shit you know it's like where is everything and um mike brown wrote a book called what brothers do and it recounts our time on the pile and uh you know, funny things happened. You know, some funny things and, and some not so funny things. And um, I had forgotten some of the things that I had done down there until just a couple of months ago when the guys from Three Truck were signing off on my presence there. It was 100 hours, I think. And uh, one night I just assigned myself to these guys from Tennessee who had the Lancer torches and they were settling torches. They were cutting steel and I'd lift the tank, you know, 10 feet and lift it five feet. And they were from Tennessee and I thought, oh, thank you for coming to New York. And they both had real Tennessee accents. Their grandfather was in charge of floor 11 to floor 22. He was a steel worker. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, his steel came from Argentina. It was crappy steel on his own money he sent it to labs to learn how to cantilever it properly and you know and I'm like 
you guys built this place? You know, it was just the weird little pockets of information you would find out. It was, you know, it was the World Trade Center, steal from everywhere. So these two guys, and I stayed in touch with them for a couple of years. But uh, it was so funny to believe, there were two Italian guys, that their father came from, and grandfather came from Brooklyn, because they didn't sound Brooklyn to me. But um, God bless them, they were two good guys. And, um, and then subsequently we found Pat, and I was called down, and a fireman who is on this island, uh, his name was Bill Ells. He was at 14 truck up by the, uh, you know, yeah, by the bridge. And Bill was, you know, a busy guy, operated, you know, and uh, and Bill called me from the site. He's like, Bob, I think I found Pat. And I'm like, what? And, he, and it was uh, December 17th, I believe, and um, or 27th. And he says, yeah, uh, we want you to come down. And, and Keith McLaughlin got on the phone, Peter's brother. And uh, they sent Rudy Giuliani's driver, was a friend of mine, a detective, first grade, Peter McLaughlin, uh, Ke- Keith McLaughlin. And he drove me down there, but they had packaged Pat up and brought him to uh, 31st Street. And I went in, because it said I was listed as next of kin in lieu of his brother not being here. And uh, that was a formative moment in my life. Uh, but all these things uh, as horrible were the entrance like into a new life you know and uh, but uh, you know again I go back to how lucky can you be to to know people like this you know Uh, you know the sum gave all all gave some you know uh these are not just little bumper stickers. I know these actual people. And, uh, you know, Pat was certainly one of them, you know. Listen, you know, I'm not moving on. You, no. you know, this stupid bumper sticker, I hated it. Never forget. I hated that. How are you going to forget? How would you ever forget? Now, there are people who are going to forget, and you can make all the bumper stickers in the world, and they're still going to forget. But like when when they say never forget, it's like, what are you kidding me? Didn't I, I? Well, I just had someone say to me, oh, so what anniversary is it coming up? And I and I thought they were kidding around, and I'm like, you're not kidding, are you? And it kind of hurt, but I get it. Life moves on because if you're not directly affected by it, it doesn't really resonate. A, a guy said to me only last year, we were just having a cup of coffee outside the firehouse before we go down to the site. We always go down early because Pat is B, and you want to hear his name and. You got to get there like 8 o'clock, let's say. Each year on anniversary of 9-11, the memorial hosts a reading of all of the names of those killed in the attacks, where loved ones read them. It was, it was gosh, we leaned on each other. Some of those people you're only going to see once every 365 days, and that was going to sustain you. You were going to stay okay for them, and they were going to stay okay for you. But uh, he said to me, he was a fireman at Ladder 3, retired. I think the world of this guy, quiet, nice guy. He goes, and he said it quietly to me. He goes, you know, Bob, every year it seems like a chain is going to be lifted off my neck. He says, but every year a chain gets added. You know, a chain gets added. And I said, yeah. You know, every year you think, well, the, the load will get lighter. But it's the opposite. To me, it's and to him. And when he said that to me, I had so much like identification with that. I was like, yeah. It really, because it's that day where you just got to get through it, you know, and um, uh, and then at the end of the day, you're like exhausted. And then the next day, this, September 12th is my birthday, which is like, 
we never celebrated our birthday anyway. But uh, did I ever tell you that one, Nils? No. We, don't, we think my father didn't have a lot of money in those days. Right. So we came up to him and said, Daddy, what we? we lived in the basement, Washington Heights. He was the super and longshoreman and bartender. What are we getting for our birthday? And, and he goes, birthday? He says, that woman over there, she gave birth to you when she was 41 years old. You want to get something on your birthday, you buy her a gift. <laughs> and we were like, that's a great idea. And, and every year since we were nine years old, we bought our mother a gift on our, our birthday. We expected nothing, no pie, no cake, nothing. You know? And even now, because like, we were nine years old, and it was, I'm celebrating my birthday, I'm having 50 people. And I'm like, what are you, nine? Like this, you know, this, so it's just this reverse. The old man pulled on us, but it worked. You know, because I'm a twin, you know, and um, we, my mother had three older daughters at that point, and and uh, uh, the poor thing. I mean, I think back to my parents' lives; they were not easy, but uh, uh, but then it became a joke. So like my, my mother would say, "What are you getting me on my on your birthday?" And I was like, "Oh, we got something good this year." <laughs> so it works. It works. Going back in time, I asked Bobby how he originally met Patty Brown. Um, I had seen Pat at meetings of this large anonymous organization, and <laughs> uh, and uh, I had been there a couple of years before him. And the way it works is, if you're new, you ask somebody to kind of break you in and sponsor you and stuff like this. So somebody came up to me and said, "Hey, Patty Brown is going to ask you to sponsor him," and I said, "Uh oh." Because Patty, to me, seemed like a ticking time bomb. He used to, like, rock back and forth in his chair. And, you know, uh, um, I don't know. He was a nice guy, though. Yes, very humble. A physically very... imposing guy. A tough yeah, guy. Tough, like a, you know. Oh, you could tell. Yeah. I mean. He could kill a man with his bare hands, basically, if he wanted. <laughs> Mike, Mike Moran eulogized him. Uh, he said he was a Golden Gloves boxer. Uh, he brought Roberta Duran to his knees once with a kidney punch at Gleason's. Uh, he was a black belt in karate. And Mike Moran goes, what my father would have said with his hands <laughs> so, um, but so after a meeting one day Pat comes across the street and he says hey Bob and I said hi Pat listen I was wondering uh, you know and, and he, he chickens out he doesn't ask me you know which is funny and uh, so then a week or two later he said I wonder if you'd, you we could work together and you could sponsor me and I says listen I, I, I'm not on your job I wasn't a Viet- I'm not a Vietnam veteran. I have no military. I says, I don't really have much in common with you. And he goes, you're here every day. I see you. Like, you know, you know but I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, let's try this, you know. So uh, uh, like anything else, he, you know, he uh, tapped me on the head with his wand. And, uh, and we were, I mean, we spoke every day. Uh, wow. When... My second son was born, and my mother, well, I couldn't figure out who would be the godfather. My nephew, if I asked one, the other one's going to, you know, my brother-in-law's. So my mother said, why don't you ask Pat? And I said, oh, okay. So I said, Pat, would you think you'd be the godfather of my second? And he said, yeah, 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 sure. And it's funny, Patty was only used to holding babies when they were coming out of, like, you know, the fourth-story tenement that was completely involved with fire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so we would always joke when we'd hand the baby to Pat. He'd, like, hold it like it was like, oh, you know, okay, okay Bob, take it, you know. And uh, he was great. When my second son was being born, I remember he was uh, he was covering at 69 Engine. I says, oh, Pat, my second son is being born today. Uh, but my other kid, is he's six years old. He's got a terrible fever. He's up in Washington Heights with, with Grandma. But she doesn't have any medicine and she can't leave him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He gets on his bike. He rides up there. He, 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 
the story was he came to the door with like a brown paper bag filled with every medicine you could possibly think of, every ice pop, everything. And it was all adult medicine. That's how you knew this guy was a bachelor. He had no clue. <laughs> and uh, so I told him, I said, it's all the wrong stuff. Oh, I'll take it back. And I said, no, it's fine. We'll just give him a half a dose. But Patty was so funny. He was a very righteous guy. Uh, he was a very righteous guy to a fault. You know what I mean? And uh, one of the steps we talk about, um, you know, humbly ask God to remove these defects of character. And it says, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. And this is the one where you see, you know, something wrong in the world and you are going to go write it. Well, that's not always the way to go. <laughs> like this, Patty, Patty used to, you know, if he saw like a cab driver being insultive or, you know, so he'd, he'd hold on a minute, Bob. Hey, you. <laughs> like this, you know? <laughs> like, but he was, he was a, a, a real contradiction in a lot of terms. Um, he started to train in karate, which he loved. He loved the discipline. He loved the camaraderie and the fellowship of that. Uh, he started to take yoga. He started to change his diet, uh, you know, eating sprouts and stuff. We used to call him Sprout then toward the end. Uh, <laughs> Captain Catastrophe and Sprout. Uh, he was eating lentils. And, and so he, he would go to this place, this very high-profile yoga place downtown. And my wife and I went down to visit him, you know, Oh, meet you at 8 o'clock, class is over. And he comes out, and this beautiful girl comes out. Goodbye, Pat. Oh, goodbye, Susie. And this other girl comes out. Goodbye, Janie. And, and he goes to my wife. He goes, you know, Bobby should really do yoga with me. And she goes, if you think I'm letting my husband in there with you, you're nuts. Uh, as they used to say, he was never want for a date on a Friday night. You He's know? a good-looking guy. He's a good-looking yes, man. Uh, yep, but you know what? Yep. He was a gentleman. Every yes. single one of the, his girlfriends, former, and uh, who came to the wake and uh i stood behind mike brown and i would kind of whisper who who was who coming mike was gone for 20 some odd years to las vegas and i said this is you know oh, this is pat's ups man you know uh, this is because those people sh everybody yeah, showed up yeah there was these three beautiful women showed up very smartly dressed and pat had rescued one of them as a child in a harlem tenement she was since a lawyer, very high charge and attorney. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. This is Michael's, Michael Brown, Pat's brother. Patrick um, carried me out of a burning building when I was six years old. And uh, I guess he was at 26 Drug at yeah, the time. Yeah, open home. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but then we would refer to them as the Widow Browns. You know, they'd hug Mike, the brother, and they'd say, your brother and I were going to get back together soon. And I would give a, a yes, a nod of affirmative, or a negative. You know, <laughs> so, but he was just a so very... So he promised more than one then. <laughs> well, you know, he was just trying to be a gentleman. Yeah. He was just a... He was larger than life. Yes. He was a larger than life guy who you could hear, barely hear him speak. You know, uh, he would... He would he's lived with me out here for many summers, and... Uh, you know, we joke, Pat, Pat, it takes you eight hours to read the Daily, the, the New York Post. And, and he would, my mother even said, there's, there's, there's no chat out of him. There's not much chat out of him. And I said, there isn't, Ma. And then one day we all made a joke that when Pat does speak, like at the, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, he's like, oh, I think I'll, we'd always like, shut up. You just, all you do is, you know, you, you jabber when you're here. And he'd laugh at that. And there was one time here, June 6th, 19... 94. My son was six months old that day. 
and it was a very tumultuous ocean. And Pat went in. He goes, what do you think? I said, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a little rough. And the lifeguards were not even drilling that day. That's how rough it was. And all of a sudden, Pat gets caught. And I said, are you okay? And cool as a cucumber, he goes, no, Bob, can you give me a hand here? Like this. And in I go. And you're not going to cross chest him and just get in. And I pushed him. I dragged him. I pulled him. Uh, and we finally got in. And, you know, the irony we discussed later, he goes, my whole life, Vietnam was firefights. And New York City Fire Department's fire. And he goes, and there I was, you know, drinking that water thinking it's water that's going to take me out and i remember i said you know it's funny i was having the same thing. not the vietnam of the fire but i said i'm yeah. a pretty good swimmer and, and now this white water is exploding in my chest yeah. it feels like an ice pick and i said uh, this is embarrassing you know i gotta i gotta get him out of here and um he told that story i think to sebastian younger he says uh sebastian asked him what was the most dangerous moment of your life what was the and he said, swimming with my buddy Bobby Burke in the Atlantic wow. Ocean. <laughs> That's... And, um, yeah, and I remember that day. I remember thinking when I was under and we was trying to push him in that my son was six months old that day. And I am fucking, excuse my language, awesome. not, I am not dying today. You yeah. know what I mean? And Pat and I got out. We were shaking terribly with exhaustion. Oh, God. And the exertion. And he never came back that summer. <laughs> and then subsequently, the next summer, he came back. I said, what, are you working off that, uh, working off that money you gave me for last at the rent? And, uh, you know, even after 9-11, I kept his room the same for three or four years. Uh, you know, he's, all of his belongings, everything I took care of. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was surreal. It was, I wouldn't have minded. I would have been hurt had my friend gone down fair and square line of duty death you know some operation but what was strange about 9-11 is you're constantly in the media geopolitically reminded of this day it's everywhere it's all around you and that became consuming uh, that's why I retreated to this island with my family uh, uh, then my son said so we retreated here so that you could become a fireman so that you could recreate the situation and have mastery over it. And I'm like, who are you? You know, Sigmund Freud. But he was right. He was right. Um, yeah, there was some truth in that in a way. Uh, but I, I, but not to get off the subject. Our kids know us best sometimes. Oh, they, right? yeah. Bobby, they, they... Um, but, you know, they know what I do and why. They know why sure. I do it. Sure. And uh, it's a lot of time away from them. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, uh, there's been times where you're just ready to have the family, and boom, you got it, you go. Uh, professional firemen, they see dad go out the door in the morning, and, uh, you know, they put it in their head, geez, I hope dad's okay. He, dad's smart. He'll, he'll come. But here, they see me go out the door, and they can actually see the flames sometimes. You know yeah, what I mean? That's a little scary. My son... Yeah. Uh, called me and he says where are you I said I'm home and he goes I'm in Fair Harbor down there he goes dad there's a work construction fire I go listen to you with the work construction he goes look out the window so I looked out the window to the west and the flames must have been 60 feet up in the air I mean yeah. so I says oh okay that's that's pretty serious so um, I we respond obviously into that and so they've seen like right across the way from me three houses going and they know dad's over there uh, but dad's friend was Pat Brown. So I study, you know, I respect the work, you know, uh, it's a learning culture. You never know everything. Uh, uh, as my, 
as my knowledge of the job and the task goes up, my body starts to go down. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it's, it's like being an athlete, Bobby. I very mean, it's, much. It's really you physical, start to physical get that work. technique. Yes. I was yes. out at the fire academy once, and me and a retired detective have the knob for the first line going to be stretched, and the instructor goes, "Why don't you let the young guys take it?" And we looked at each other. and We said, "We are the young guys." And uh, <laughs> uh, even the other night, I was out there. We were operating on the second floor, and I hear the call that they're trying to push it. They're having trouble pushing a third, uh, second line to the third floor. I said, drop what we're doing, you know, and get out there in the hallway. And we start to snake it up. And, and I'm like, you know, I come oh, out yeah. of there, I'm dizzy. Um, that's why I, I try and keep myself in shape so that I'll be able to do it. But at the same time, the day will come. It must be a very hard day for you guys. I mean, well, for me, I, I had no way all the way around it. I mean, you got leukemia and six months later, they're throwing me out. You, you can never come back. So I, right. I, I was short of 22 years. Wow. Uh, Wow. Two years of NYPD prior to that. And you but, had a lot of service. I mean, you had a lot of uh, I was in some good service. trucks. Yeah. I was blessed. I, I worked in great, you know, 114 truck as a fireman, uh, 105 to start. I spent a little time down at South Street Seaport right after. Unfortunately, they lost 14 guys that morning, a uh, lot of 15. Spent some time, six years, in 112 truck out in Bushwick. And then I finished up in a uh, ladder 80, 80 truck in Staten Island, Port Richmond. So I, I had a as I say, a lucky, great career. Um, yeah. I was blessed to see a, a good amount of, of fire and, and, you know, compared to my dad who was, you know, on in the 60s, 70s yeah. until he got cancer and ended up in an office. But as my dad would say, uh, kid, you guys are only occupying troops. We fought the war. And he, <laughs> he wasn't bullcrap. I mean, uh, That's a great you know, one. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, you know, they would get you know, four or five jobs a night. I can't. And, uh, I can't. Just, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, I can't insane amount it. of fire. But he said it. You have to know when to walk away. It's like being a football player. He goes, you don't see any 50-year-old linemen. He goes, when you start feeling it and you think you're going to be a liability to someone else, you get out. Yeah. And, uh, but I wanted to be him. I wanted 35 years before I packed it in. Wow. And this, the worst part is they train you to do everything except retire. Wow. Once you're out, you don't know what the hell to do with yourself. And Bobby... Our other Bobby is going through it right now. He's been out for a little while, and every guy I talk to, especially when you're not ready, if it's an injury or an illness, you're not prepared because it just happens and you're gone. Whereas sometimes guys who just luckily get in there 33, 34 years and say, hey, okay, I'm ready now. Um, but, yeah, I miss it with my soul. I mean, I, I, I feel like I could still do it. Um, you know, chemo beat me up pretty good, but uh, there's days when I feel like I get on that truck and sure. do it. Better than ninety percent of the guys they're hiring now, you yeah. know. But uh, <laughs> then there's other days, and they say, "Okay." And that's not a feeling; that's yeah. a fact. Buddy. Well, thank you. Uh, and then there's other days, and I go, "Yeah, it's a good thing they put me out the pasture because wow. I'm just not feeling good today." Yeah. But, yeah. but it is a physical, physical job, and and you know the sad part about it is you get guys that stay into their sixties, and they catch a heart attack. Or, you know, they they just you know that's unfortunately one of the biggest killers of our guys right yes. out there is heart attacks um but yeah it is a physical physical job it's it's definitely harder to do but, but one of my captains god bless him ron caratu spent his entire career in 112 truck in bushwick just about as a fireman lieutenant and captain and they had to time that man out they had to make him retire at 65 wow and at 65 he could do the job as good as anyone i've ever seen do it he was incredible just incredible it's like joe angelini yes the only one, one time i ever saw him he and operate. his son died that morning yes, together sure. yeah yeah i remember only one time seeing rescue one lay in 
I was on some block. It was a six-story. Um, oh no, I'm sorry. It was four-story. It was a walk-up. And I remember Joe going entering the building, and I watched from across the street. And and he was the first one looking over the the parapet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, he must have been sixty. And he did about forty years, I think. Yeah. Right when he passed. Yeah. And, and so and you know the the thing about. Uh, firefighting and and the men that I've known and everything, just the strength. Like this, it's it's a different kind of strength. It is. It it's is. a different it's kind of strength. And it's, it's 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 uh, uncompromising. It's uh, you know I know strong guys and athletes and but firefighters who I've known cer- certain of them, it's just like crazy. Well, the physical test, the old entry test, and I know things <clears> have been changed and what have you, whatnot. But one of the old running jokes with NYPD and FDNY, there's a big rivalry. And I'm going to get myself in big trouble for saying this, but when cops would break our chops, yeah. back in the day when we had the rubber coats, they call us the rubber men or the honeybees. And I say to them, I say, hey, guys, you know what the difference between a fireman and a cop is in New York City? And they're like, what? 100% on the firefighter's physical fitness exam to get in. And they would because a lot of them took the test and they failed it. Oh, and then yeah. they were miserable and yeah. they couldn't be a fireman. Yeah. And it was a brutal test. I wow. took the test in 1987 and 77,000 guys from around the country took it. And they were only hiring 3,000. And I was wow. one of the lucky few. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I still remember my list number, 636. And uh, I, I remember saying to my dad, there's 77,000 guys. How the hell am I going to do this? He goes, how bad do you want it, kid? Wow. And uh, I have a guy I got to go. give a shout out to in a way, too. To, I had a teacher. I, I failed out of Catholic high school because I was a goofball. And uh, it was a Monsignor Farrell guy in Staten Island. I ended up in Tottenville. And my gym teacher, who I loved to death, New York Irish guy, Jack Tracy, Played for the Baltimore Orioles, I think double the triple A, and he was my gym teacher. And I started cutting. And he started calling me Angles. And I'd proudly wear my dad's FDMY t-shirt a lot of times to class. And he said, Hey Angles. I says, Mr. Tracy, why are you calling me that, sir? He says, Because you're cutting every friggin' corner there is. And he goes, I'm gonna tell you something right now, and you tell your father I said it. FDMY don't hire any anglers. He goes, wow. they hire guys that are straight up that wanna do it. And he hit such a nerve because I was 17, and I, I t- said to myself, I'd rather be dead than not get on the fire department like my father. Wow. And I went home, and I told my father, and he said, he's 100% right. We don't like anglers. And that was it. I was on a mission from that day <laughs> that, on. That expression, square rooter. Square rooter, yep, yep. I, that, I, when, I, when that was explained to me, I thought that was the funniest yeah. thing in the world. That's what we call guys who are trying to... Uh, Always beat, trying know, to cut, cut you know, corners. and yeah. It's like, what is he doing? What is it, you know... You yeah. want to do a mutual with me because I got to cover with him, yeah. and, you know. And it's like freaking square, square rooter. rooter. I'm like, that's hilarious. Guy would try to square root the loops out of a circle. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right? I, but that's but yeah. you know when you speak to having like a mentor like that, and it's not a mentor. It's I remember a nun, a nun. She said one sentence to me. Yeah. have some backbone. And it oh it hits oh it stuck with me. Now she would have been fired and canceled yeah, and sent to yeah. uh, you know the Grace Convent, hundred miles off the coast of Africa. There right? you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, that's the other thing too is having these mentors in in one's life, and you just pick and choose. Like oh, I'm going to do what he does in that respect, or you know the way Joe does this, you know, and and that's what I do. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people who have always been who have been my mentors who they don't know it, you know. Yeah. But certainly, um, certainly, Patty, uh, he would talk about the job, and I just never understood. I was a civilian. Uh, you know, oh, we had a good job. Yeah, good job. I says, Pat, I read in the paper there's 10 families who lost their apartments. No, 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 it was a good knockdown, good knockdown. And I'm like, 
How is that? Yeah. I couldn't. Good was not synonymous with people being burnt out. What what he was speaking to was nobody got hurt. We right. got everybody out. Right. We can find new apartments for these people. We just can't. We can't make new people. And yeah. um, so then I started. And then, you know, when he would talk about the job, and it wasn't until I pushed my own first fire that uh, uh, you know your moment of truth. Oh yeah. I never really had a moment of truth. I I thought I had. But I didn't. Yeah. And I and I went down the hallway, and I was on the knob, and it was uh, three room and contents. You know, one of these wood, and it's going. Oh, you get hurt. It's going. You get You're not going to get much time pushing this. And I remember the thought that came to my head was, I didn't sign on for this. Yeah. I did not sign on for this. My wrists are burning. My neck is burning. And then the next thought that came to me, and it was Patty Brown's voice. He said, Bobby, this is exactly what you signed on for. Absolutely. And you know what happened again with with COVID and, and pandemic, because I got inocul- I got vaccinated very December early because I was an ambulance driver. Right. It's like, wait a minute, I didn't sign on for this. This is exactly yeah. what you signed on for. Yeah. And so, you know, in Christ, in the gospel and the Bible, they call it profound doubt. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would Jesus say that? He's Jesus. Why does he have any doubt? Well, they, they speak to it in theology as profound doubt, and it's okay. Get it out of the way. Then the faith comes in, and and uh, uh, you know I, I I played astronauts, guys who were strapped to the Saturn V, and I said, what was it like? He said, are you kidding me? I was ready to, you know, go in my pants, because you're afraid, but you're training. You just say, I'm gonna, you know, press A, press B. But he said, when the when the rocket would go up, it was shaking so violently. There was no way to simulate that on the ground. You just thought that the thing was coming apart until all of a sudden. And then the afterburner kicks in, and you're sure the thing is blowing up. There's no way to simulate it. And, and uh, Bill Anders, uh, Jim Lovell, I never got to meet Frank Borman, but uh, they'd say, oh, yeah, it was a kick in the pants. And that's the, what we say in the, in the show. Uh, we just, we're just doing their dialogue. It's that taking the action and letting turning over the results to God. You know, I've done my due diligence. I've trained. Here I am doing so there was there could be uh, tremendous fear, but you do it anyway. And 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 Patty, there was a, a waterside towers fire where they were just introducing the thermal imaging camera. It was right. the old big Argus one and Argus two. The thing weighed forty pounds, and he pointed. Now they're beautiful. They're this yeah, small little, little ticks. compact. So, uh, but he was pointing. And he was on Channel Five, and you know, the commissioner is here, and this one's there, and. And Patty goes, yeah, this thing is really helpful, but it does show you how dangerous this job is like this, you know, because the whole thing was turning purple. Um, I had a tremendous teacher in the spirit of Pat Brown. You know, he still, he informs me every day. You know, guys were getting tattoos and I thought, you know what, let me remember, I have to put him on every day, you know. Yeah. Um, I keep his mascot in the windshield of my car. And my mother said, why do you have Pat Brown in there? And I says, Ma, I don't think St. Christopher ever pushed the burning room. You know what I mean? So I said, I, I think Patty's spirit will get me there just as well as St. Yeah. Christopher. She goes, oh, that's a good point, you know. But, um, yeah, he's, 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 he's still all around, you know. I'm not, you know, psychologically impaired by his essence and presence and spirit. But if you're going to have somebody around you, he's a good guy to have in your Absolutely. life. Yeah. Another pretty good one that Bobby was fortunate to have and also met at this large anonymous organization was Father Michael Judge, the FDMY chaplain who heroically entered the World Trade Center to be with his men. 
and died there. But when Bobby first met him, he only knew him as a colorful attendee named Michael. I was at a meeting once and, and I was talking to Pat, I guess was next to me, and I said, yeah, Ireland. And this very mild-mannered, white-haired guy turned around and he goes, what part of Ireland? And I said, Galway. He goes, oh, my people are from Mayo. And I go, I think it was Mayo, yeah. yeah. And is that where you... Oh, Leitrim. Was he Leitrim? Was he Leitrim? Yeah, it was Leitrim. Yeah, my mom's, it was Leitrim. My I'm mom's sorry. Cork, yeah. Yeah, and, Cork. Uh, and I says, oh, yeah. And he goes, both parents? And I said, yeah. He goes, whew. Like this, you know, so <laughs> a lot of county oh, competition well, you know, over there, right? It's, he was thinking, he was like, you know, what kind of what kind of upbringing did you have? I said, very strict. And he goes, oh, but they loved you. And I said, yeah, they did. And and so we started chatting like this, and and uh, he, he he just had this. Air. I thought he was like some retired like exec. exec. Yeah. I didn't know what he was. I just thought he was, this is a lovely yeah, guy. He's a very he's distinguished a, looking man too. He had his yeah, little yeah. Irish cabine, yeah, his yep. little. You know, Eisenhower jacket, very yeah. dapper. And, uh, but again, a lay clothes, not clerical. Yeah. And I'd see him at this meeting and that meeting. And he'd say, hey, how you doing? Go out for a burger afterwards and chat and everything. And then um, one time he did show up with the Roman collar and everything. He goes, ta-da. And, and I says, oh, I said, my mother will love that look, you know. And, you know, subsequently in his friar robes, um, but th- that morning, there's some videotape of uh, Father Michael, and you can see he's very distressed, and he's walking in the lobby, and you see his lips moving, and he's praying. But what I learned from Father Michael, he wasn't praying with his words that morning. He was praying with his actions, and his actions, you know, we, we would have these tremendous discussions about faith without the work, pretty much gospel of james i think or rather the book of james um the faith without the work and one of the central themes of what father michael conveyed to me in some of the discussions we would have was that you know uh he'd say you know jesus kept it very simple bob he only said a very few things that we kind of historically know he said one was do unto others as they you would have them do unto you and and, and the other was uh, to ask the question, who is the least of my brothers? Now, not who is in need or who, who needs help or who's the very least. And when you have done it for him, you have done it for me. And so Father Mike would always lean in and say, can you imagine the prospect of that? Answering that question on a daily basis, Bob? And I'd say, no, I can't. Like this, you know, I'm trying to just get by in life. But he, he called, well, I heard his call for me to, to, to answer that, to say who the least of your brothers are and to go and help. And in 1987, that was pretty easy to answer in New York City. It was the people nobody wanted to touch or be near, uh, 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 you know, the gay community, people who were transfused, needle-using drug addicts. And so... So Mike would say, he goes, you know, Jesus didn't tell me not to hang around with certain people. He said, everybody is my, these are my sheep, you know, and, and I tend to my flock. And he said, that's it. Color, skin, this, that, your age. You're no, 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 no. So he seemed to think that the AIDS community, uh, the people who were really getting very sick and who nobody wanted to touch or be with, he said they needed to be ministered to. They were... Uh, the children of God, just as 
much as anybody. And that's who he went to. So I had a man who helped me, and he died of AIDS. And Father Michael said the Mass. And I said, boy, that's a coincidence. Why is he here? Uh, because the man who helped me and took care of me in that program was also the same man who took care of Father Mike. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, because you're taught, you know I mean? You're taught the way. There's lots of different ways people teach you all. <laughs> There's one way also. There's the right way, you know? And people say, well, how does that program work? And the answer from the founder was, just fine. Like this, you know? So, uh, and, you know, I, I was walking down the street with Patty Brown one day, and Michael had a very big influence on Pat. And Patty's like talking, peels off a dollar and he goes over to this homeless guy and gives him a dollar and go three more f- blocks and there's a guy with a cup and Patty goes, oh, hold on. And he goes and gives this guy, he sa- I said to him, Patty, you can't give every homeless guy a dollar. And Patty looked at me like a child in the eyes and said, why not? And I said, oh, okay. You know, like it's going to be a long walk down at you know, 34th Street, wherever we were going. But just that, uh, why not? Uh, so, so that's what I've tried to take away from knowing those men was not what I say, not what I think, not what I feel, but my actions, what I do. And let that speak to my service, to my faith, coupled with action. Again, uh, Father Michael, there was a quality you read in the gospel sometimes about how people wanted to just touch Jesus, just be around the guy. Let me just be near this guy. I, I got Historically, we know Nazareth, Galilee, Bethlehem, everybody was professing to be the Messiah. There was 150 guys in any given town at that time saying, I'm the Messiah. This is the truth. I'm the Messiah. But he said he was. But people wanted to go to him. Why did he get the calling? Why did, why did the people congregate and gather to this Jesus as opposed to these other so-called uh, Christs? Anyway, uh, uh, so Michael had that ability, and Pat had that ability too. In this program, the people were very struggling with alcohol, let's say, and people would say to me, "Do you think? Do you think Patty Brown would talk to me?" And I said, "Of course he will," you know. And he always would. He never said no. And uh, a day, a night, night a day, you know, whatever time it was, he was on call twenty-four hours. It seemed, and uh, so Father Mike saw those qualities in Patrick because Patrick was really trying to live his life. Every time we get to a level, it's, hey, you're doing great. No, 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 I can do better. I can do better with his diet, with his exercise, with his, his helping people. We would say double down or attack. Patrick Brown suffered from depression terribly. And it was a byproduct of maybe his physiology, his anatomy, his service in Vietnam. Uh, you know, there were the trauma he saw in the New York City Fire Department. And one day I said to him, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm taking this St. John's wort. And I go, what's that? He goes, it's a root. It's supposed to help with depression. And I go, oh, yeah, how's that working for you? And he goes, he goes, I don't know, Bob. He goes, I'm chewing these things like M&Ms, and all I'm doing is shitting all over the place. Like this. So, you know, we laughed so much that particular afternoon. He, he told me later, he goes, you know, we laughed so much about that that the depression lifted. I said, well, that's, that's God working in our lives. Um, but uh, uh, I think back to 9-11, let's say, and the fact that Patrick fell and Father Michael fell and so many fell on that day. And I think 
how would Father Michael have survived? You know, the, how would Patrick have survived, you know, uh, a day like that? You know, if, God forbid, you know, if they, one of them was away golfing, or neither of them you golf. You mean guilt, Bobby? You the mean guilt, guilt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, uh, 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 it's funny because Pat rarely left the island of Manhattan in case something happened. You know, you know I'm not kidding you. Anybody who knows him knows that's true. Yeah. I said, Pat, come on out to the beach. It's 4th of July. Well, you know, I got the whole city to myself. I'm like, okay. Like this, you know. Plus, he was a bachelor, so he would take shifts from guys. You know, it's like, go ahead. You know, I'll do a mutual with you, and you can go. Because he liked the job. He, you know, and he was a neighborhood fireman. He wanted a spot at 69 Engine, but it didn't go to him. And he became very resentful. Uh, but he let that go. And then he got the spot at Ladder 3, and he was bicycling to work from Stuyvesant Town. Yeah. To, and he said, I'm a neighborhood fireman in the greatest tradition, Croker and uh, uh, what was oh. the other guy? Uh, uh, I have only one aspiration. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brannigan, Hannigan, whatever. There was Halligan, another guy exactly yeah. talking about, but it's true. It's so true. anyway, he uh, was yeah. a neighborhood fireman in the great tradition of the New York City Fire Department, and he was very happy with that. And he, he loved the men at Ladder 3. He would always call me, oh, I got this one guy here. He's a great mechanic, so he's going to work on the car. Don't worry. Yeah. And I got another guy here. Oh, he's into traditional Irish music. Oh, he's giving me these. He loved each and every one of these guys. He was really landed on his feet there. And, um, and it's one of the most revered companies in the history of the job. Yeah, a three truck is I a suppose, great, great yeah. place. Oh, yeah. You know, and he said, uh, stellar. He goes, I think they're taking me downtown here as a Manhattan fireman because they're worried about something. He said that to me in wow. May of 2001. So what are they worried about? He goes, I don't know, but there's a lot of good guys being pulled downtown. Well, in 94, we had a training manual. With I was at the first 93 bombing. And in 94, 95, there was a training manual with the towers, and it had a bullseye on it, and it said it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. No kidding. And they wanted us to be more in tune to possible terrorism and this and that. And, in 94, uh, after I 93. I it was 94, 95. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, and and I I got that sense. I never too. heard that one. Buddy. And one but of my one of my bosses, and I I out of respect won't give his name. Well, actually, I will give his name because he was one of the best bosses I ever encountered. Chief Charlie Casper, who was friends with Patty Brown. Yeah. And Charlie was the captain of Rescue One at one point. Wow. And when I got promoted to lieutenant, and he said, well, "Where are you going to go?" I said, "You know, Chief, I think I want to try out Manhattan." And he says, "I'm going to tell you something right now." He says, "Lower Manhattan is the most dangerous place on the face of the earth to be a fireman. Be careful." Wow. And that was probably I, I got made in '02, so I think that was probably somewhere early '01 or late 2000 that he said that to me. Wow. And yeah, maybe they. Who knows? They, yeah. But he said that to me. I remember yeah. that. Another thing about 9-11 is, you know, Thomas Merton and these great theological philosophers, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk, they, you know, in, in the face of tragedy, tremendous tragedy, there was great goodness released, you know what I mean? And I think this is something that Father Michael would have been cognizant in, of, is, is all the pockets of goodness. You know, he, he gave that speech at the dedication, I forget what the company was, he was up at... Uh, he goes, look at the job you get to do. You know, you get out to ride on the rig, you, you know, and, and, and more so like in the fire department, mostly, you know, I know a lot of police officers too, and I, I work with them constantly. This chief of police here is like my best buddy. I love this guy. Yeah. We don't deserve a guy like this. He's, he's just the biggest heart, you know, and, and look at the type of people you get to hang around with. Uh, Ronan Tynan, the singer, 
Oh, the Irish he was, tennis. Yeah, he was singing at a medal day, the first medal day after 9-11. It was held in the garden. And he went to start the song, and he, he went to start it again, and he just goes, he, he looks out, he goes, you know, he goes, you're the finest people in the world, just like that. And he had to get that out of him. He's looking out at this crowd, and, there were, and he just, he says, okay, now I can sing the song. But he just had to make that statement, and that's what I feel uh, when, I, like, the, the, the type of people that you get to hang out with. The, the, oh, the, I was out with Dennis Leary once, and he, he calls me. He says, hey, we're, we're on the Upper West Side. We're across from your house. We're having dinner. I get Terry. Terry Quinn. Quinn is yep. here and a couple of guys. Terry and, was the uh, yeah. tech, tech producer and, and, and the, creator. There was Dennis. a guy. Yeah. FDNY right. member. <clears throat> so I, I go across the street, and there's a bunch of firemen. There's like 12 guys. And, and hey, Bob, hey, Bob. And, and there's this guy sitting across from me. He looks like a pirate. He's got a scar here and a scar here, and he's crystal blue eyes, and he keeps staring at me the whole dinner. And finally, at the, at the end, he goes, you go by Bobby. And I go, yeah. He goes, you got a twin brother, Billy? I go, yeah. He goes, your parents are from Galway? And I go, what are you, writing a book? <laughs> and he goes, it's me, Eddie. And I go, Eddie? He goes, Eddie Meehan. Oh, yeah. We were childhood friends. And I says, Jesus, Eddie, how are you? And he goes, I'm great. Oh, my God. You know, he was my cousin, Stephen. I only had one set of cousins in America, and they lived in Inwood, where he lived. And I says, well, Eddie, I haven't seen you in 41 years. How are you? You know, and, uh, uh, you know, God took Pat from me, but then gave me Eddie. Yeah. Because Eddie and I had very similar uh, 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 paths in life, you know, and... Uh, now, Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's just unfortunately so yeah. many guys. Didn't Eddie passed away. Eddie also? passed. Eddie passed cancer. also, and he called yeah. me one day, and we would talk all the time because yeah. he was a member of a large anonymous organization yeah, too. Yeah. And we had the same like we liked Irish traditional Irish music. We liked the same history books. Yeah. You know, just come around. I knew Eddie character. Ah, yeah, character. His nickname was Spartacus. I mean, and you don't get your nickname; they give it to you. So Eddie was like about as he was as tough as nails. The scars, they, yeah. this guy, Georgie, I think Georgie from 22 Truck told the story okay. of how he got the scars when he was a kid and somebody gave his sister a hard time. So rather than go in the building and get them, he goes up the fire escape and crashes through the guy's window. It's like, Eddie, you didn't need to do that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, we'd always give him a cape. For the stuff. effect. Yeah, oh, for the he effect. wanted the effect. <laughs> but, uh, and he, he bore the scars of that. You know, he was like 16 years old when he was 15 years old when he did it. So Eddie called me one day and I said, so, hey, what are you doing? And he goes, uh, he goes, I thought I dodged a bullet, you know? And he put a lot of time in de- working downtown. And I said, what do you got? He goes, oh, it's, you know, it's all over. And I says, oh. And then, then he called me back another week later and he goes, I'm done. And I was like, oh boy. He came to The Rock the day that we saw you. Uh, Dennis. Uh, yeah. Dennis does a training day. <clears throat> yeah. Foundation, and, that's right. Uh, but so he, he wasn't sick then. He no, it was it was I didn't it was May. He and he, he, he he got sick in June, and then he passed like very he quickly. Fast. And I didn't I mean, even realize it was it was that fast. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't know him well, but I knew him, and and all of a sudden it was as fast gone. as any man I've ever yeah. ever yeah. seen. Uh, yes, nine eleven, irregardless. And uh, maybe that's he, for the better in a way. Bobby, well, right? yeah, he, he was a, talk about brave. Oh, he was a tough guy. You know, he I, he he just would look at me and say, I, "I can't believe this is happening." And I said, "You know, I would say nothing." 
And he would say, uh, I, but you know what, what was deep in his core was he'd say, I miss the job. I yeah. miss the job. He goes, I miss it so much. Because it really, you know, gets into your bones, I think. And oh, the men, yeah. we talk about veterans and the hard time they have, you know, reassimilating um, after a tour, you know, and it's an intense tour in combat and life and death, but maybe two years in or three years. But, you know, guys like yourself, 22 years. Yeah. I'd give like, my left arm if I could go. I've been out nine years now. And I think I could, the most profound thing you said this morning was they teach you everything except how to retire. That's it. And you walk away lost. I it's, remember it was a winter, cold winter, snowy January day, and I got the call that you're out. And I took my rescued greyhound, who I've since lost, Katie, and I was walking up the road with her. And I'm looking, and I'm saying, Katie, what am I going to do? And she looked up, like, you're just going to walk me a lot more. Wow. And I was I was crushed. And then in the same week, my little girl, who's now 19, I'm home. And, you know, I was working three jobs. And, you know, the, the firemen, the typical firemen, yeah. you know, they pay you enough to get by, but you want to live that much better, send the kids to Catholic school, go on vacation. You hustle. And, you know, my wife stayed at home by choice, raising the babies. And all of a sudden, my little girl, Catherine, says to her brother and sister, you know what the best thing about daddy getting cancer was? And they said, yeah, he's home for dinner now. And I, I, I put my plate in the dishwasher, and I walked out, and I cried. Wow. And I realized, like, how much I was missing them and how much I put the job first because, you know, you work with these guys that you love, and, and you know, you live with them for 24 hours at a time, sometimes 72 hours a week, depending on overtime. Longer than and, most marriages. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and they get to know you almost as well as your wife, you know. And, 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 and it just... That's something outside of you that's affirming you. And, and it's... But to have it taken away, yeah, to me, is, I've seen guys... Some guys can't handle it. They, yeah. they end up in a bad way. And, you know, I was blessed to work with giants. I mean... I'm not going to lie to you and say, you know, every guy I was a cop with or a fireman and I was blessed to be in the Army Reserves for eight years. But I, I've been honored to work with some of the best human beings that God put on his earth. And that's one of the things with this project is just to get the stories of people who gave it all. And there's hundreds of thousands of people in this country right now, volunteer and paid, and I say this is profound. They're willing to give up every one of their tomorrows so you can have one. And that, I don't think, is being recognized in today's society, media. You know, just it's just not being put out there. And, and I think, Bobby, you're helping get that message out today. And one thing I read studying about Patty was there's a teacher, I believe, in Philadelphia. And Patty, like you said earlier, he was so known for his, his good deeds, his little good deeds. He was a a man who spoke softly but carried a big stick. And uh, she said, why don't you do a Patty Brown today, a good deed? And that, to me, I'm saying, wow, you know, if we could get everybody out there doing a Patty Brown once a day, and what a great friggin' country it would be. I think be. the rules of that one is you got to do something, but you can't tell nobody. You know right, I mean? right, just do uh, it, you know, and, and, you know. But it's esteemable. It gives you self-esteem. Yeah. You can't think your way into being a man or act or talk your way or feel you. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do your life. Um, you know, the thing about first responders, police work, fire service. I had a friend who was probably one of the most high profile firefighters in New York City. And he oh, was my wow. good friend for a long time. And I had no idea what he did. Yeah, humble. I said, oh, fireman. Yeah, he goes, he uh, squirts water on the fire. 
Oh yeah, we've got to get in the building first. You know what I mean? Or he's got. You know what I mean? I had no idea the actual mechanics of the job and the strenuousness. In the same light, <clears throat> I learned as a first responder, even in this beautiful island, benign. I mean, you know, uh, uh, beach setting. People are calling you on their worst day. Oh yeah. Grandma's choking. Grandma's. We had a stroke this morning, four o'clock in the morning. So this beautiful paradise for them on that moment and that day turns into a horror show. Oh, that was the year that Jimmy fell off and fractured his femur. We had the other, you know, we constantly having these. So you have a, a section of the population that said, I want to help people. I want to become a firefighter. I want to become a police officer. And I t sometimes explain to people, think of the worst day of your life when something bad happened. Something really like... You know, your child got this horrifying bump on their head. Let's start with that. And a police officer showed up. But he showed up 16 other times that day for other people on that day. And guess what he did the next day? He went back and did it again. Very rarely is he involved in shootings and stuff like this. So he's constantly... Now, after a week of this, and a month of this, and a year of this... Here is a person who has the wherewithal to show up each day and to try and perform as professionally as possible. But, you know, uh, like in any job, we all know this. In any job, you're going to find somebody who's just has, is struggling with themselves, you know. Uh, but certainly in a job where you are showing up for people on a daily basis who are ha experiencing the worst day of their life. You know, the most traumatic day. And you, you sustain it. And you absorb their trauma. And you absorb their trauma. Then you go eat lunch. And then you go back and you absorb more trauma. Yeah. Oh, there's a car accident. Oh, there's three people in there. Oh, I see this. But you've seen it 62 times in one year. And you've done 18 years. People oh, don't absorb the, you know, young, Carl Jung used to call it the psychic scarring. You get scarred from that. There's stuff you don't, you can't forget. And so I understand if a police officer acts, you know, I don't want to watch it. If a police officer murders somebody, you know what I mean? That's not right. But we whitewash ourselves into thinking that, well, they're all, no, no, no. Humans are human and they have failings. And um, so you want to you wanna fund or defund? I say take the funds and put them into giving me a better police officer with better psychological examinations, better yeah. sociological identification. I know my parents came here from another country and uh, we were allowed to get out of where we were. And I think pretty much a lot of it had to do with the color of my skin. Uh, I hate that fact. My father was one of the most beautiful people to learn a lesson from irregardless of your the color of your skin he was a big content of a man's heart he could yeah. recognize men and people and good people but uh I, again i say i hung around with the fireman i had no idea what he did but that's not true any longer after two decades as a volunteer firefighter this episode we've rightfully spent a lot of time on bobby's friends patty brown and father michael judge but now we'll dive more into bobby's own service where I'm sitting right now is the fire hall of the Ocean Beach Fire Department. Humble, modest, 
little fire department, 70% of the United States is volunteer fire service. This is the way our country began. It's daunting now, though, because they're with all these certification and recertification and this and that and Homeland Security and FEMA and OSHA and PESH. And if you break a fingernail, they're going to send you to class 16 hours to learn how not to break a finger. You know, it's, it's really something. But it's also a privilege. Um, I think I was a, a kind of a, a young one, but a Kennedy Democrat, you know, asked not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I think that's the way it should be. I really do. I, I don't see anything wrong with that philosophy. You know, I'm first generation. First generation, mother and father. You know, I'm in this country, and what are we going to do? Are we going to ask what you can do for me? No. That's not the way this experiment started. And I like being a part of it. So I, I, I threw in with the volunteer fire service, and, and I didn't understand what it would entail. You know, there was a time when, oh, Jimmy will show you what to do. Those times are over. It's like 140 hours of classroom. There's a, several weeks of hands-on. I get the finest training on the planet Earth because my instructors are from Nils job. Uh, they moonlight out at the Suffolk County Fire Academy. The, the facility is unbelievable. I was out there Wednesday night, and uh, it's like a privilege. It's like, you know, what Father Mike would say is, you know, send me where you want. Let me do who you, what you want. Let me see who you want. Let me say what you and, and And then let me get out of your way. You know, that's what God in my life, I, 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 so many times, even this afternoon, let's say, I could say, gee, I never thought I would be in this situation. I just, you know, probably one of my best days as a fireman was helping a, a kid. He was autistic and he was struggling. He was thrashing in this. He had a bicycle chain caught around his leg. And nobody, mom, dad, he's screaming. And I, I was driving the ambulance. I ran back to the firehouse two blocks and I got a bolt cutter and bolted. Ah, he was fine. You know what I mean? Like this. I mean, that gave me so much relief that day, particular day. I've given compressions to people in attics that were 100 degrees for a half an hour. You know, it's like, and I'm, and I'm working this person, and I'm thinking, I was an actor. Like, how did I get here? It's because of this guy. Bobby was pointing to his metal wristband with Patty's name on it. You know what I mean? Because I listened, and I saw. And sure, I helped him at the beginning, okay? But he eclipsed me, you know what I mean? He, he just kept going, you know? And you know, very big medicine. And you want either going to take the medicine or you're not going to take it. And I decided I would take it. So it's a privilege. It's really a privilege that God has given me in my life on a daily basis to to do what I do. God has put me in a place. And you know what? At a certain point, I said, just you know, do with me what you will. Take me where you like the Father Judge prayer because I can't not. There was Nils will tell you after 9/11, so many weird things would start to happen. For me, anyway, uh, I'd be I'd be on the phone with Mike Moran at a restaurant, and the table next to me would burst into flame because you know the guy caught the menu on the candle, and the candle took the bread basket up. And I go, "Smoke showing at table number two. Oh, Mike, I'll call you back." And I took my water, and, and like these things, I turn on the television. I was out here once working on my house, and I turned on the television. It hadn't been plugged in in months. Turn it on, picture comes on. It's Pat's face. Me and this guy Patty Dillon were like, "Oh my gosh," you know. Uh, I'd be in Arizona doing a movie, and I'd be, yeah, my buddy Patty, he was the captain of three truck. And then, you know, 
Arizona engine three uh, ladder three goes by, and I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Constantly happened. And anybody, Mike Daly, the writer, he's like, I don't think Pat likes being dead. And I was like, I don't think he does. His spirit so informed. It was crazy. After a while, it became a little, I mean, it was like, you know, uh, uh, even today, you know, like with you guys, you know, Dennis Leary does a show about the fire department. Okay. So that's my personal life and my professional life mixing. Then, But I go on to become a volunteer firefighter. And now it's like this amalgam. I go on runs sometimes, and people go, wait a minute, aren't you Lieutenant Tucker from Special Victims Unit? I'm like, no, I look just like that guy. Uh, I mean, we've had to quash that over the years because people recognize you. And the guy's like, hey, Cap, you know, well, I was a lieutenant, let's say, uh, we're, we're half an hour because you were out there, you know, bullshit. And I was like, well, you were the guys who gave me up. So I, you can't walk away from people because then you're a schnook, you know? The guys on the ferry knew you, Bobby. We were coming over like, who are you visiting? And I saw a friend of mine, Bobby. He goes, oh, the fireman actor? I go, yeah, how do you know? <laughs> they, they know you. <laughs> as low a profile I keep, I live in a place called Robin's Rest. you got to go through sand to get there. You know, I'm out here. There's only 100 people out here in the winter. <laughs> I'm trying my best to... But it's funny sometimes when people do. A guy, this Italian kid, he's got a big cut. He got in a fight. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I got the stretcher out for him. And I'm looking at him, and he's like, hey, it's Cousin Mickey from Rescue, <laughs> Rescue Me. Me. And, and I says, what? He goes, you're Cousin Mickey. And I said, bro, if I was Cousin Mickey, why would I be here at 4 o'clock in the morning with you? Oh, my God. Oh, and his buddy has no, what are you talking about, Jim? He said, that's Cousin Mickey. And I said, bro, I, I, I don't know who you're talking about. I must look like that guy. He goes, I'll tell you something. He goes, you sound like him, too. <laughs> so these kind of funny things happen. You come in and people give you a double take. And the go-to thing with my guys is he looks just like him. He gets it every day. Oh, okay. And then they kind of, you know, they kind of let it go. I've been blessed to do some film work, which is where I met Bobby on the set of Rescue Me. And I've got to tell you, his service as a first responder where he's risking his own life is rare in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of big egos in the industry, but not Bobby. And that's part of what's drawn me so much to him. There's a wonderful acronym I always keep in my head, E-G-O, easing God out. You know what I mean? And it's when you talk about ego, easing God out, you're putting yourself, see, so my life is the exact opposite. Whatever the opposite of that is, it's easing God in. That's pretty profound. You know yeah. what I mean? It's very yeah. simple. Like joy, J-O-Y, Jesus first, other second, yourself last. Very, I keep it very simple, Mills, because yes. I'm not a very smart guy. But, <laughs> but it's good like that because it's like um, spiritually it feeds you like just like a baby. Like I'm a baby every day. I got to remember these things to be kind. I literally write it on the mirror sometimes. You know, and I'm not some, I'm no saint. I'm, I'm just a guy trying to get through the world. I have horrible defects of character and horrible shortcomings as 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 a man and as a father and as a you know but i'm stumbling toward the goal every day so nine eleven was an exterior determinant you had these religious men who probably never helped anybody a day in their life muhammad atta did he get out of bed and, and throw himself through flames to save people? I don't think so. So you had these very sick, wayward men, and they thought that somehow they were going to help their religion. They were very wrong. And history tells us there are men like this who, who pop up from time to time 
and do great damage. And he was certainly one of them and those 19 other fellas. Uh, it was a moment when we came together. You know, we saw the, we saw the ill effects of fanaticism to believe so strongly in your right to take another, uh, to take the innocent's life, innocent people's lives, because that is what God, that is what Allah is commanding me to do. Well, certainly he is not. Um, so we, we had a wonderful opportunity, you know, like again, uh, the great religious philosophers to say, well, let's see this tragedy and see what good comes out of it. And it, it a lot of good came out of it. A lot of good blossomed out of it. Certainly a lot of pain and trauma uh, came out of it also. But uh, I think as a country, when we had this exterior determinant, this act of terrorism, uh, then it didn't matter who you were or what you were or what color you were or what your politics were. You came together to help each other. We're Americans. And we saw the senselessness. Like, that's how you get your point across? by hurting somebody else. There's no, there's, for our species, racism doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, uh, we're, we're all on this planet. It's a very small planet. It's becoming a very dirty planet, very polluted planet. But anyway, so 9-11 was almost squandered, I think, in, in, in certain ways, that we did drift away from the central aspect of, of helping each other and, and pulling together as a country and as a nation. Um, it awakened in me what I can do for my country. Maybe I wouldn't have been where I, I certainly, certainly would not have been where I'm sitting right now. I can 100% know that without that happening. Um, and I think many others felt the same way in this sense of military service to their country. Um, because of 9-11. So many of the people in my community, and I mean not my show business community, I mean just my regular, were affected by it to the point where they took action and it changed their life. Um, so yeah, it had a very large impact geopolitically on, the, on our entire planet. And I'm hoping still that we can come together thinking that what we've gotten through you know, as a country, uh, red, blue. Uh, I love this thing. It says, you know, what it, the you know right wing and left wing are the same bird. You know what I mean? And uh, I love that one. You know, um, because divided we fall. We know that. And anybody who doesn't know that is in the wrong country. Um, Abraham Lincoln, the house divided. You know, so short of some other horrible tragedy. I mean, and you see it in our country. Come together, we come together, we come, co kind of constantly come together. And a lot of times politicians keep us apart, I think. Politicians who never wore any uniform, who I would deem as cowards. The worst thing I can label on you, the worst word, concept, theme, concept I can lay on you, and I think a lot of them are. And I think that's why they hide behind being a politician. Some very good politicians too, very effective people. You don't really hear about them. They're very, usually very quiet people, very effective people. But the blowhards, you hear plenty about them, never wore the uniform, never wore any uniform. Nobody in the history of their family has ever worn a uniform. 
So, um, again, let's go back to what people do. You know, oh, I'm going to write a check. For, uh, I don't want to. I'm going give, to give something that's more precious than anything. Your time and your actions. Because uh, I know a lot of people who write checks, and I'm very happy for those people. <laughs> you know what I mean? But lots of times I would take their time and their action over their check. Because you want to know something? If people saw them committing their time, they said, wow, that's more impactful than, you know, so-and-so wrote a check for a million dollars. Oh, well, he should. But so-and-so got out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning because there were four houses burning. Really? Hmm, maybe I should. You know what I mean? That's where you're going to be impactful, I think. But certainly 9-11, it entirely changed so many people's lives. And I am not, I am, I am on that list. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us and being part of this project. You're a true inspiration, and I'll forever hold our friendship close to my heart. And I want to thank another person, Father Michael Judge, our FDMY chaplain from today's story. I had the honor of meeting Father Mike in 1993 as I was rushed to Bellevue Hospital from a serious fire truck accident. Father Judge greeted my family, and he had a magnetic aura about him. People are just drawn to his presence, and you see the goodness of his soul. He placed his hands on me, and he prayed over me as I was placed into a CAT scan tube. Miraculously, I was sent home four days later with no injuries. Six years later, after suffering another injury, I'd find out that I had actually fractured my cervical seven vertebrae that night. The doctor told me it was nothing short of a miracle that I still was working and had no permanent damage. I truly like to believe that it was Father Judge with his angelic touch that healed me. I know he's still watching over his beloved firefighters of the FDMY every day, praying for them and protecting them to keep them safe. Father Mike, it was an honor to know you. Rest easy in heaven. And folks, if you've enjoyed these stories, please make sure to check out our website, 20for20podcast.com, and consider signing up for our free newsletter at the bottom of the page so that you'll receive notifications about the latest episodes and also great written summaries of them. And to all those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and please stay safe. I'm Nels Jorgensen and this is the 20 for 20 podcast.